We have titled this series, From Dust to Glory, and obviously the images that we use there of dust and of glory refer to the whole panoramic scope of redemptive history, beginning with creation and moving inexorably toward the promises found in the Apocalypse or the book of Revelation that talks about the coming glory of Christ. But in a more restricted sense, we can look at this period of time that we're looking at at the present in terms of from dust to glory in miniature. The kingdom begins in the dust of the plains of the Sinai wilderness when God creates for himself a nation under the leadership of Moses. And these people then wander through the dust, through the wilderness experience, and then through the period of the judges. And the dust begins to turn to glory with the kingdom of David, but in very quick order the glory turns to dust again. And this regression to dust takes place at the end of the life of Solomon. We read about it in the 11th chapter of the book of 1 Kings, beginning at verse 26. We read there, Then Solomon's servant Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite from Zerada, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also rebelled against the king. Well, just as David had to endure numerous revolts and palace conspiracies in his reign, so now Solomon has to endure an uprising against himself. Now, verse 27 is significant because we read these words, And this is what caused him to rebel against the king. Solomon had built the Milo and repaired the damages to the city of David his father. The man Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor, and Solomon, seeing that the young man was industrious, made him the officer over all the labor force of the house of Joseph. Now, do you remember I said in our last session that one of the things that led to the collapse of the United Kingdom was Solomon's great foolish error of enslaving a portion of his own people to be tools of the government to increase the splendor of his kingdom. And ironically, it was Jeroboam that Solomon had selected because of his courage, his bravery, and his industrial spirit that he assigned Jeroboam the task of being over this labor core of people. Well, then we read in the text that it happened that Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem and that the prophet Ahijah the Shilonite met him on the way. And he had clothed himself with a new garment, and the two were alone in the field. Then Ahijah took hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourselves ten pieces For thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon, and I will give ten tribes to you. Now let me just pause there for a second. Jeroboam goes out and he runs into this man who is a prophet. The two of them are alone. The prophet has this beautiful new garment. And one of the things that we find characteristically in the Old Testament with the prophets 
is that so often they will communicate the word of the Lord to their hearers by means of a device called an object lesson, where some concrete action is performed that graphically symbolizes or portrays an impending action of God. And this is what takes place in this encounter. For the prophet takes this beautiful garment and rips it into twelve pieces. Now obviously the significance of the number twelve is not difficult to understand. The twelve pieces refer to the twelve tribes of Israel. And now the prophet says to Jeroboam, take for yourself ten pieces of this cloth. And then he explains that God had spoken that He was judging Solomon for Solomon's sin. And as a result of Solomon's disobedience, God's judgment is coming on the nation. And He's going to rip the United Kingdom in half. And He's going to give ten tribes to Jeroboam and take them out of the control of Solomon. Well, let's continue then. He said, But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. Now it would seem that we have a problem here because he has twelve pieces of cloth, <laughs> and he says he's only given one tribe to Solomon. Well, that all gets down to the Levites not being a tribe, and then later on the sons of Joseph dividing the inheritance between Ephraim and Manasseh and so on. But the point is that the tribe that is going to remain under the control of Solomon is the tribe of Judah, which causes us to remember the patriarchal blessing of Jacob centuries earlier when he said, the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. So that the dynasty that God creates with David is a royal succession that is given to the tribe of Judah. And the only reason that we can imagine here that God doesn't take the whole nation away from Solomon, but rather preserves one piece of cloth for Solomon, is out of respect for the patriarchal promise and out of God's love for David and the promise He made to David that He would have someone on His throne forever. Now, let's see what happens as a result of these things. Verse 36, To his son I will give one tribe, that is to David's son, that my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen for myself to put my name there. So I will take you, you shall reign over all your heart desires, and you shall be king over Israel. Now this is the first hint of the divided kingdom. And when we speak of the divided kingdom, now this nation that formerly had been called Israel is now rent in two, and so the northern kingdom is called from there on the kingdom of Israel. And the southern kingdom, which contains the city of Jerusalem, is called the kingdom of Judah. So that now this southern kingdom is named after the one tribe that is spared for the descendants of David and of Solomon. Now, 
Then we are told of the death of Solomon and of the response of his son, Rehoboam. In chapter 12, and this sometimes gets confusing because we're talking about Jeroboam and Rehoboam. They are not brothers. Jeroboam was not the son of Solomon. Rehoboam was the son of Solomon. And here's what we hear of Rehoboam in chapter 12. And Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. So it happened when Jeroboam heard it that they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the burdensome service of your father and his heavy yoke which he put on, and we will serve you. And so he said to them, Depart for three days, and then come back to me. And the people departed. So then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who stood before his father Solomon while he still lived and said, How do you advise me to answer these people? Now, do you see what's happened? There's this big gathering in Shechem. And Jeroboam comes with his whole army. And he has now the power to turn all these tribes against the successor of Solomon, whose name is Rehoboam. But he gives Rehoboam the opportunity to preserve the union, to preserve the nation. He says, your father's hand was heavy upon us. Now, what's that referring to? It's referring to the very enterprise that Jeroboam himself was engaged in, this enforced labor of his own people. And because of that, these people are restless, and they're ready to bolt. They are ready for a civil war. But Jeroboam says to Rehoboam, if you promise us to put an end to this kind of oppression, we will all be loyal to your kingship, and there won't be any division, there won't be any split. And so Rehoboam basically says, let me think about it. He says, depart from here for three days, and we'll come together and see what happens. And so in the interim, Rehoboam consults his elders, seeking their counsel. And he said, how do you advise me to answer these people? And they spoke to him, saying, if you will be a servant to these people today and serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. Boy, is that great wisdom. What are they saying to Rehoboam? You want these people to serve you? Well, if you want them to serve you, you need to serve them. Because the role of the king is not to oppress his people, but to serve his people. The king is to be a servant of God, being of service to the people he rules. As we said early on, when the kingdom was first established, the king of Israel was never given the authority of autonomy. Every king in the nation was accountable to the king's law, to be subservient to Yahweh, who alone was to be the supreme king of the people. But the record that we find here is the record of one king and queen after another, arrogating to themselves the authority and the respect that properly belongs only to God. And so now the advice and counsel of the elders to Rehoboam is serve the people, and they will serve you. Well, listen to his response. But he rejected the advice which the elders had given 
and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and who stood before him. And he said to them, What advice do you give? How should we answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, Lighten the yoke which your father put on us? Then the young men who had grown up with him spoke to him, saying, Thus you should speak to this people who have spoken to you, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it lighter on us. Thus you shall say to them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's waist. And now, whereas my father put a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, I will chastise you with scourges. The young bucks are full of themselves. And they grow up and they're sharing and basking in the power of Rehoboam. And they say to him, don't listen to the old men who are weak and they want you to lessen and diminish the power that you have. Let us stand with you, seize the power, don't give up an inch of that power, and say to these people, my little finger is going to be thicker than my father's waist. If you think you were in trouble with him, then you better buckle under, or I'm really going to put it to you in a way that you've never imagined. And so he made this announcement to Jeroboam and spoke to them according to the advice of the young men. And when this happened, the people answered him by saying, What share do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, and now see to your own house, O David. And so Israel departed to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the children of Israel who dwelt in the cities of Judah. So now the civil war begins and the nation is divided. And the division of this people was to last for century after century after century. And the subsequent history of the conditions both in the north and in the south reads like a rogues gallery, particularly in the north. No sooner does Jeroboam assume power and control in the northern kingdom of Israel than he goes out and creates two special sacred sites and consecrates a golden calf, saying, this is the God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. He no sooner assumes the power of the northern kingdom than he directs the people into the practice of idolatry. And that becomes a microcosm of the future history of the northern kingdom. Let me just say a couple of things about this period of the divided kingdom that is chronicled here, both in the book of 1 and 2 Chronicles and in the book of Kings. And I know that people get bogged down reading through this period, but the history that unfolds in the days to come is absolutely crucial to understanding the whole scope of Old Testament faith. The northern kingdom, after the time of division, lasts just about 200 years. And in that 200-year period, there are 20 kings. Now, you figure it out that the average length of monarchy in the northern kingdom for the rest of its history was 10 years. Now, some of them didn't last 10 weeks, but the average is 10 years. And in that period of 
200 years, there are 20 kings, nine families, nine different dynasties compete for ascendancy in the northern kingdom. You know, we talk about in British history, the Tudors and the Windsors and so on. And you talk about the different houses or families from which the monarchs come. Well, in the northern kingdom, there is so much disruption, so much division, so much intrigue, so much internecine rivalry going on that there is no stability. Twenty kings, nine different families. One of the most significant families in the northern kingdom was the so-called House of Omri. Omri was significant for establishing a rival central capital and central place of worship to Judah and Jerusalem. He made the capital of the northern kingdom to be the city of Samaria. Now, you maybe haven't heard that much about Omri. He was as able an administrator and ruler as he was despicably evil in his religious behavior. Omri really accentuated the turning of the northern kingdom to idolatrous practice. And perhaps the most illustrious descendant of Omri in his dynasty was a fellow that you have heard of, who's immortalized, if nowhere else, by Herman Melville as the captain of the Pequod in the novel Moby Dick. Ahab, who becomes the king over the northern kingdom. And Ahab becomes synonymous with evil. And Ahab marries a woman who is militantly pagan, and whose desire is to convert the northern kingdom to the worship of her gods, to the renaissance of idolatry in the land. And her name, of course, was Jezebel. She has become so associated with wickedness that even in this day, if a woman is known for extraordinary evil, we say of her, she is a Jezebel. And it was the wickedness in the northern kingdom that provoked in the first instance the uprising of a whole new line of prophets spearheaded by Elijah, whom we'll look at later. In the meantime, in the southern kingdom, the southern kingdom maintains a certain stability. Though it's certainly not an era of great godliness, there are numbered among some of the southern kings some godly men. And there were reforms that took place from time to time during this period. But the southern kingdom, unlike the northern kingdom, lasted approximately 350 years. Now here's what I think is is fascinating, that in the northern kingdom, which only lasted 200 years, you had 20 kings, nine families. The southern kingdom has 20 kings, over a period of 350 years, almost twice as long as the northern kingdom, but the same number of kings. And as had been ordained of God and in keeping with His providence, one family. So that the 
dynastic succession of David remains intact for 350 years after the divided kingdom. So that the house of David is preserved from generation to generation in honor of Jerusalem and the house of God. In 722, the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrian invaders, and the people of the north were taken away captive. In 586, 587 B.C., Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians. And so, from this period of division comes the great captivity, where we see finally the fall of both kingdoms, the north and the south. First, the northern kingdom, the fall of Samaria, 722 B.C., later on in 586, the fall of Jerusalem and the fall of the kingdom of Judah. And bleakness and darkness came upon the people as they had lost their heritage and as the prophet Amos would later declare that the booth of David had fallen and the throne of David was entangled with snares and with weeds, with rust, and seemingly consigned to everlasting oblivion. But for the promise of God to his servant David that he would establish his throne forever. And as Amos would say in the coming future, God promises to restore the fallen booth of David. And all of that is screaming towards the future to the coming son of David who is David's greater son to whom the kingdom is given forever and ever.